Support for this show is brought to you by Instill. Our friends at Instill really understand what it means to build and manage relationships in a holistic and human-first way. The platform's advanced UX design and real-time analytics, smooth donor management to make it easy for you to connect every supporter to the impact of your work. To learn more, head on over to www.instill.io backslash Mallory. I found out that they can put all the strategies that we have studied into four packets. Mm-hmm. And this is the framework that I'm offering for motivating yourself. Welcome back to episode 38 of What the Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. In today's episode, I'm talking to Dr. Ayelet Fishbach. Ayelet is the Jeffrey Breckenridge Keller Professor of Behavioral Science and Marketing at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business and the author of Get It Done, Surprising Lessons from the Science of Motivation. She is an expert on motivation and decision-making and has done a ton of research around fundraising in particular. Today, we are talking all about what creates motivation in donors and what fundraisers can do when it comes to keeping themselves motivated. There are a number of things that Ayelet shares that really blew me away, especially some of her research regarding how to motivate a donor depending on their closeness to your organization. She even has research on how specific word choices and data when used in outreach inspired certain types of action from specific groups of donors. It's really fascinating. When it comes to increasing our donor retention, there are so many important takeaways related to how to develop closer relationships in the first place and how to ensure that the right funders are staying involved and committed to your organization. You are definitely going to be surprised by some of her recommendations around donor motivation and fundraiser motivation. So let's get into it and go meet Ayelet. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to be here today with Ayelet Fischbach. And I was really excited to invite you onto the show today because I had Dr. Ethan Cross on the show. He kicked off season one with us, and then he recommended your new book, Get It Done. So I'm excited to be talking about all the different components of motivation today, and then also just learned about your incredible research and work in fundraising specifically. Let's have you just give us a little bit of that background and bio around what brought you ultimately to the book and what brings you to the conversation today. I am a motivation scientist and I've been doing it for uh, many years. I've been interested in uh, what uh, gets people to to study, to uh, save, to uh, eat healthily, to exercise Mm -hmm. and and also to uh, support social causes as they work with uh, other people. And just uh, a couple of years ago, I realized that my knowledge is it becomes too messy for me like I really need to organize what we know in motivation science Mm. so I decided to just take all this amazing knowledge that we developed as a field and and, and organize it and I found out that I can put all the strategies that we have studied into four packets Mm. and this is the framework that I'm offering for uh, motivating yourself and, and also those around you. 
Amazing. And I love that we're going to get to talk about motivation, both from the donor perspective, what motivates donors to give and sort of their level and engagement in giving, and also what motivates fundraisers to do the fundraising work or stay motivated to do the fundraising work. But why don't you start by just telling us what those four buckets are? And then I know there are a few of them that we're going to dig particularly deep into. Yes. So the first thing is setting a goal. And you want to define the goal such that it feels good. It's not a chore. It's really the destination. It's something that's exciting for you. You want to put a number of it. There are a number of things that really helps goal setting. The second packet is sustaining motivation as you are going from here to there. How should you monitor progress? When should you look back? Are you at the 20% half full or the 80% half empty? And when we looked at donations, we often intuitively represent that in terms of progress that we give others and ourselves the feedback. And I'm asking what kind of feedback is the most motivating? We never just want one thing. When do people decide to prioritize? When they decide to put all these goals together and find the right compromise? How people engage with self-control conflicts, which are goal conflicts. And then the final fourth packet is leveraging social support. And, and this is really where we did a lot of work on, on fundraising because if a goal is important, you do it with other people. You have other people working with you. Also for your individual goals, you have other people mm. helping. But specifically in, in the context of fundraising, it is a goal that we are pursuing with other people, which is one reason why I was excited to talk to you today. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So maybe we actually start there, um, go backwards a little bit, because I think what's really interesting about what you're saying or that you're inspiring me to think about for the first time is perhaps even the relation between the first bucket that you said around clarity around the goal and collectively working towards a goal. So I think about nonprofits and the role that they play in verbalizing or storytelling around a shared goal and how to identify donors that share a goal with them. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? How should organizations think about their clarity of goal in relationship then to the collective pursuing of that goal? You should think about your goal in terms of who's benefiting, okay? How uh, uh, much should you do? Okay, what mm. is the, the specific number that you are trying to reach uh, by a specific time? Okay, it could be the number of signatures or the, the amount of mm. money. And, and you should know what you are trying to get. You should have a very uh, clear goal. Now, you should realize that this is uh, not a one person's goal. Okay, so this is not uh, anything like your goal to uh, eat healthy foods or uh, to uh, complete uh, a college degree, because this is something that you're doing with other people. And when we, we think about the other people, well, it could be a group of potential donors that you know, work together to make this happen. Uh, it could also be that the group of the people that are helping and the people that are being helped. Okay? And, and so how well do they work together? How much they see themselves uh, as part of a group. One of the things that we uh, found is that how much potential donors uh, identify 
either with other potential donors or with the beneficiaries of the health uh, matters for how much they are willing to give. Talk to me a little bit about that. I'm really curious um, to learn more about that. That work was in that, the context of uh, looking at how feedback on progress uh, motivates people to work on, on their goal. And when you think about feedback on progress, you can either look back or look forward. You can either look at how much you have done or how much mm-hmm. is uh, uh, still missing. And what we found is that for people that uh, are highly committed to uh, to the organization that mm-hmm. they are helping, uh, it is best to tell them how much is still uh, missing. Whereas uh, new donors or people they never uh, gave were more uh, motivated by thinking about uh, the money that has been uh, contributed. But to give you an example, in, in one study, we had, uh, this is a study that we conducted in, in Seoul with uh, uh, an organization that was trying to, to raise money uh, to uh, children uh, in uh, Uganda, and it was many years uh, ago, and they had two groups of donors. They had people that were raising a monthly contribution, so Mm. the highly committed people, and they had people who gave their contact information, meaning they want to engage but never made any contributions. Mm. Not committed, but still want to engage. What they found is that if they approach the people who are giving on a monthly basis, the highly committed individuals, and tell them about the money that's still missing, they are more likely to give than if they tell them about the money that they already had. Mm. The new donors, just the opposite. Okay, They are more mm. motivated if you tell them about the money that they already uh, collected. Now, what's going on? If you are highly committed to a cause, you are more likely to act if you feel that you are falling behind, if you feel that mm-hmm. you are not quite where you want to be. Okay? Like you are much more likely to respond to, oh, we are still so far. We are like mm-hmm. 50% away from where we want to be. You want to make progress. If you are uncommitted, you are trying to figure out whether this is even worthy of your time or money. And so if other people are doing it, then that's a good signal that this is worthy. Mm. If you hear that other people are not doing it, that 50% is still missing, then you think, I guess that's not very important for people and therefore not for me. The critical point is that it's just about how you monitor progress. It's the same objective situation. You are at the 50%. You either Mm. emphasize the missing or the completed part. Uh, This is going to be a bit of a lengthy answer, but No, it's really interesting because it makes me think about even for organizations to think about donor segments, perhaps, and what segments of their donors should be getting messaging that focuses on the what's left to raise versus how much has been raised based on their level of engagement with the organization. And it makes sense to me back to what you were saying before. I think this is what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, but that there's this component, this identity component where the folks who are already deeply committed or giving monthly to the organization, they already have the identity component ingrained in them. So when they hear that there's a gap that needs to be closed, they want to participate 
date because perhaps there's more buy-in around already people like me close the gap. But for the other folks, if that identity piece hasn't been cemented yet, what they really want is to be a part of the group of people making it happen. And that number has to be demonstrated to be big enough where it's like they want to start to identify with the group of people doing the thing. So the nice thing is that you already concluded the, the result of a study that I actually did not describe yet, but you're <laughs> right. What I described is a study in which what we knew is that some people are giving regularly. They are more committed than the people who never gave money. We had the same thinking as what you just expressed. And so I think mm. a few years later, we ran a study uh, again with a uh, the same organization. This is an organization in Korea, and uh, they are giving money at this time to people in Kenya. Mm. Now we directly manipulate their uh, identity, okay? Like mm. how much they identify with uh, the people who are getting the help. And the way we did that is by either talking about the beneficiaries as, as our children, Okay, the children that are supported by our organization, these are all people who are already giving money mm. to, uh, to, to this country, to this organization, to, to help kids. Mm. And we either talk about our kids in Kenya, they need our help. Okay, And so mm. it feels like you are very much identifying with the group. Okay? It's mm-hmm. all kids. Okay? These are the kids that we are responsible for as an organization. Mm. Uh, versus another group that read a message about those kids far away. Mm-hmm. Remember, like the donors are in Korea, the kids are in mm-hmm. Kenya, like on the other part of the world, there are these kids, they, they need your help. And we found exactly uh, what you described, which is that people that feel close to uh, mm-hmm. those beneficiaries are giving more if we tell them how much money we are still missing. Where is mm-hmm. that? Uh, the people that don't really identify with their beneficiaries are giving more money if we tell them that other people are giving. Wow. That is really fascinating. I want to go back to, I feel myself making an assumption that I want to check a little bit here. When you talked about the four buckets and you talked about clarity around the goal and its relationship to motivation, is what you're saying that clarity is equally as critical, even when that goal isn't set by you. So for these donors, the organization might be setting the goal around the time bound nature of the campaign, how much they want to raise, what they want it to do. But that clarity that they've set is a piece of the puzzle to both motivate the fundraisers and the staff members of the organization to achieve that goal. But that clarity is also a key component for the donors to participate in the collective component of it yes it's the clarity of the goal and the clarity of the progress toward the goal okay Mm. knowing exactly where we stand need to be how well we are doing Mm. okay and that has equal sort of influence and power over both the fundraisers the people asking sending out the emails as it does the donors and funders participating in the campaign i uh, completely agree i would say that most of the research that we did was with the donors or with the Mm. potential donors Mm -hmm. we we studied among other (laughs) motivational challenges uh, what motivates people to give okay let me ask a little bit of a different question 
we were talking right now about the difference between sort of retained donors that continue to give on an ongoing basis versus sort of new newly acquired donors or people who are in that pipeline. When you think about motivation in relation to what creates the greatest retention, the greatest sort of repeat donors coming back year after year, let's say the campaign has ended, the goal that was achieved related to one specific thing. And a few months later, the organization or the next year, perhaps the organization is launching a new campaign with different goals and some different messaging. What are the components of motivation that are really critical to ensure that those same donors participate again? Uh, That's a a big question. (laughs) Uh, One thing is uh, how much they feel uh, committed, how much they feel that uh, this is part of uh, what they do and part of their uh, identity. We looked at what creates this uh, identity, what creates this connection to a campaign or to an organization more generally. And one thing that we discovered is that people think about giving as as part of who they are. And we often allow people to uh, contribute without their name, raise an anonymous Mm -hmm. contribution. We found that while people might sometimes choose to do that, that builds very little commitment. These are Mm. not the people that will think about your organization as part of their identity. It's the people who sign with their name. It's the people Mm. who gave something personal. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, We uh, found that when people left a personal message with a contribution, and this is a study in which we invited people to buy cookies from Mm. a charity and by that uh, contributing to the charity. And, And some people were just buying these cookies. Other people were buying the cookie and and leaving a message. Uh, Those who left the message with their name felt more committed, even though the message often was just two words, just like, good Mm -hmm. luck, Mm -hmm. I yell it. Like, you know, really a very symbolic contribution. We found in in a study that uh, people who contributed a pen that they had for a while felt connected to the campaign. Uh, more than uh, people did not donate uh, this pen, wow. or may- maybe donated the pen that they just used to sign their name and didn't really care for. An even more impressive demonstration of how you, you create this commitment that allows you to go back to the, the person is uh, a study in which we ask people to uh, tell us what would be the contribution that they would consider equal to donating blood. And so imagine that you had to donate blood or that you wanted to donate blood But someone offered that you'll give money instead. How much money would be the same for you personally as donating the blood? People are giving us an amount, let's say like $40, which was actually the the average amount, Mm. but every person has their own amount. Uh, And then we ask some people, if you donate blood, how committed are you going to be? And the other people, if you donate money, how committed you are going to be. People are telling us that blood is the same as money. They made it equal. Mm. Nevertheless, those that consider donating blood felt more committed because this is such a self-giving, right? This is like Mm. really giving out of your body almost. Mm -hmm. Now, this, of course, is is extreme and most organizations are not interested in our blood. 
<laughs> but they might be interested in our signature. I love what you're highlighting here because I think we see in fundraising so many kind of activities that are about the nonprofit giving the donor something in exchange for a monetary contribution, giving them the pen or writing them the note. And I'm not suggesting that it's not important to send thank you notes or anything like that. But I think what you're saying here about how much more connected the donor feels when they also contribute something of meaning in addition to the financial contribution, which is supported by a ton of data we see around things like giving Tuesday, for example, when people both volunteer volunteer and give a financial gift, they're so much more likely to be retained because they've done both at the same time. They've had this experience that sort of roots their identity more deeply in the organization than the click of a button, which maybe gave them a dopamine hit for a moment, but it didn't necessarily bind them to the organization in the same way. I feel like one of the things I hear from fundraisers a lot is their nervousness around asking for too many things, or they just gave us a financial donation. So how could we then ask them to leave a note? Or how could we then ask them for their pen? And what I really hear you saying is that this is a deep desire of humans to feel connected and to build their identity with causes and organizations they care about. And it's not about extracting things from them that they don't want, but that giving them an opportunity to contribute something really meaningful. Absolutely. And I completely agree with you that this is often unintuitive because we, we often think that people want to uh, not be bothered. Just write the check and, and you don't need to leave a note. Okay? <laughs> don't be bothered by that. And what we find is that if you choose not to leave a note, you will not leave a note. But if I invite you to make the personal connection, this gives you with a donor more value okay mm-hmm. this is a, a social connection and when we support a cause we see ourselves as part of a group that's doing something together and we, mm-hmm. we want to be involved we want to be part of the the thing we don't want to just like you you take my money and then don't bother me mm-hmm. bother me connect me okay but this <laughs> is something that we do together and I, mm-hmm. I want to uh, uh, be involved or at least you know, have uh, uh, the option to be involved, to be part of the, uh, the movement. He also illustrating some very general point that as, as people, we see ourselves as part of a group. Okay? When I say we landed on the moon mm-hmm. or we won a game on, over the weekend, well, I'm not an astronaut and I don't play professional sports. Okay. So I don't mean that I ever did any of this. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm part of the group. Mm. When you're thinking about a, a fundraising, making people part of the group is, is a big part of what it means to, to support a cause. First T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. 
It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. I want to shift and start to ask you some questions about fundraiser motivation and behavior. But before I do that, I'm curious from your research around fundraising and donor behavior, was there anything else that you found that was really surprising to you? I mentioned just one more finding, which is a recent study in which we looked at two messages, express support and make a difference. I think that what was somewhat intuitive that express support means that you should give less than if I ask you to make a difference. Mm. We expected that when the message is to express support, then people are going to be uh, doing less. And part of it, some of the studies were about giving money. Some of the studies were about just doing the Mm. work, just Mm. helping the organization. And when we asked to express support, then people were doing less than when we asked them to make a difference. But what was really interesting for us is that when we uh, asked to express support, then people were much more likely to help. We, we, we observe this effect where expressing support means that you really feel you need to help and a very large group of people were uh, willing to engage, whereas the, the make a difference message was uh, suggesting that you should not do anything unless you plan to really make a difference okay we really make a big thing and no one one of the studies with that fund raising here at the university of chicago and we, we found that when the message is to make a difference people are just giving less because only few people are willing to give a lot wow that is really fascinating i would have had the same assumption that's really interesting so maybe i'll ask one more question about donor behavior you had mentioned before differences in messaging that gets a lot of people to give versus fewer people to give more can you just tell us a little bit about that Yes, so this is that uh, study that messages about expressing support are getting many people to give messages that are about making a difference. The way people understand it is give only if you can really move the needle. (laughs) Uh, It's not about uh, every donation counts, it's about Mm -hmm. making a difference. And what's important for organization to the extent that organizations often need to be very clear about their goal for the campaign. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. I think, let me give you the example of us as a school. Okay? If we are getting our uh, students to, uh, to give to the school, students can't make a difference. We really mm-hmm. want to use messages that emphasize express support and getting to mm-hmm. 100% participation. We just want to create the habit mm-hmm. of give back. Mm-hmm. Okay? Uh, when we approach people, 15 years after they, they finished their degree, mm-hmm. well, at that point, we want to engage you if you're interested in making a difference. That's really interesting. And especially as we 
think about all the different ways during COVID and the pandemic and lockdown, people have been participating in activism and philanthropy in different ways. And there's been maybe a lower barrier to entry than perhaps there was before for certain organizations. It's interesting how folks maybe think about what they support based on small actions or activities or little donations here versus where do they feel like they're really making a difference? Even when I just think about those words for myself, I'm like, there are a hundred things I support, but I am probably making a difference on two or three of them where I'm really investing more of my time and more of my money. So now that I'm really thinking about it, I'm like, yeah, that does make sense. But my first gut, maybe because we see the language make a difference so often, I would have thought that was more moving. So I'm, I'm just really fascinated by that data, but okay. Let me actually force myself to talk about fundraisers and motivation because I am really interested in when we go back to those four buckets and we think about the piece around identifying the right goals and then also understanding the relationship between competing goals. I was, I was telling you before we hit record that fundraising is such an uncomfortable experience, particularly for new fundraisers, particularly when there hasn't been work done around mindset, just the ways our brains naturally feel about fundraising and the level of sort of uncertainty activates a lot of our chatter <laughs> and just inner critic and fundraisers. And I am speaking for myself for 13 years, avoid a lot of the most impactful activities when it comes to fundraising. They'll continue to organize their donor database, but they won't send the outreach email. We do a lot of kind of busy work and we're like, we're fundraising, but really we're just doing all the busy work around fundraising. And the biggest way for us to impact how much we're actually raising is by these scarier actions. When I was first looking at your work though, and I was thinking about this idea of competing goals, I was like, this is also particularly hard for nonprofit leaders and especially small nonprofit leaders where the executive director is responsible for so many things. And one of their goals is fundraising. Will you just talk to us a little bit about that and how you suggest people look at competing goals and think about prioritization, especially when perhaps there's like a fear component or a demotivating factor related to one of them? Yeah. Thank you for bringing the conversation back to where we were hoping to focus. Let me break it into several questions. Uh, one issue is uh, why we are uncomfortable asking people to help in mm -hmm. the first place. Well, it turned out that it's largely a misprediction. We are concerned about asking for help because we think that we will get rejected and we will feel bad about it. We underpredict usually how much people are going to like getting connected to their, their requests and how much uh, uh, positive feelings are going to mm. result from uh, the interaction. So in, in our mind, interaction is often more negative than mm -hmm. when it actually played out. Mm -hmm. uh, we know it for all kinds of, of requests. Okay? Mm -hmm. When you ask people for something you uh, envision in your mind, you're imagining that the rejection, usually that's not what happens. And so usually it's much more positive experience than what you imagine. Uh, then the second issue that you've raised was, okay, you think that this is going to be uncomfortable, uh, then what do you do? One possibility is uh, you just try not to think about it. <laughs> you, 
I cried, I, I will do it sometimes when I get a chance. Another possibility is, is facing the discomfort and uh, anticipating the discomfort. And so the two types of uh, findings here, one is that when you anticipate something to be hard, you are more prepared to do that. When you engage mm-hmm. in envisioning the obstacles, you are in a way readier. Uh, I use the, the metaphor of preparing to lift a heavy piece of furniture. Okay, If, if you think mm-hmm. that the piece of furniture is very light, you are going to approach it with very little force and it's going to be really hard. Mm. If I tell you, I want you to help me lift the sofa, and by the way, it's really heavy, mm. you will be more ready to, to do that. When it gets to uh, motivated actions, when people envision the obstacles, when they say, this is what I want to do, and this is what's going to prevent me from doing it, mm. they are better able to do that. At one point, we ran a diary study in which we just had people at the, in the morning, okay, list what you need to do and what will prevent you from doing it. And just this exercise mm-hmm. of thinking why this is going to be hard made it easier for, for people. And then you're raising that, what we call in the literature, the licensing pattern where mm-hmm. I don't do that thing that I'm supposed to do, but I do something else. And that licenses me not to do the thing that Mm. I am supposed to do. Maybe instead of actually making the call, I will arrange the list or do something else that's not quite making the ask, but that will make me feel licensed to Mm. not do the ask today or tomorrow. So is that piece around preparing themselves for you're probably going to look for a distraction here. This is scary and you might distract yourself by doing this other activity. Is just having awareness around that alone enough to increase motivation to take the scary action? Yes, but it doesn't mean that this is the only thing that you could do. (laughs) Okay, tell us all the things. (laughs) Another thing is uh, uh, to... uh, Reframe what discomfort means to you. Let's mm. move away from donors to a very different activity that often makes people uh, uncomfortable and uh, is uh, acting or in, mm. or improvisation. And we recently ran a study with a, a second city, that the famous improvisation club here in Chicago, where we found that if we tell people, your goal is to feel uncomfortable, feeling uncomfortable is a good sign. Okay, it, it's a sign that you're learning. That made them more motivated to engage in the exercise. Mm-hmm. We then use the same technique in getting people to read information that they uh, didn't like, do things that don't feel comfortable, but they might feel uh, unnecessary. What we do here is uh, mm-hmm. encouraging people to think about your discomfort as a sign that you did the right work today. Okay? Mm-hmm. You were supposed to feel uncomfortable at least until that becomes a habit and, and that starts to feel uncomfortable. And particularly if you are new, if you're doing something new, by the way, everything that you are doing, mm. you're not an expert in, is going to feel a bit uncomfortable. But if you think mm. about this discomfort as a sign that I'm learning, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, then discomfort means that it was a productive day. I love that so much. We talk about that a lot inside my program because 
that was a very fundamental shift for me as a fundraiser to recognize that the discomfort I was feeling right before a funder meeting was actually a really good sign that I was pushing my boundary. And I'll have folks come to me sometimes saying that nobody's ever said no to them in a funder meeting or said not that much. And to me, I'm like, that's not a good sign. That means you're not asking anywhere near what your funders are capable of. And I I think that's just such an important point that I just want to put a pin in for listeners, which is like that discomfort is such a good sign that you are fundraising on your edge, that you're pushing yourself um, to think bigger, that there is not a lot of great fundraising that happens inside folks' comfort zone. I'm really glad that you brought that up. And I'm curious, going back to the fourth bucket around using the help of others to stay motivated, I'm thinking now about fundraising teams and how they can use some of the principles that you've talked about here to support internal support for overall annual fundraising goals, but also creating space for some of the things you've said that discomfort's okay and how they can create a culture or a support system that really keeps everyone motivated. I think that you are referring to a, a culture that acknowledges that there are setbacks, that there are failures, mm-hmm. that it doesn't always work as you anticipated, because you're absolutely right that if it works exactly as you, your best case scenario, then maybe you should adjust your best case scenario. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you're not asking for enough. I, I remember that um, one point, I, I'm not a, a great baker, and so I, when I make uh, uh, whipped cream, I never know how long to mix it. Mm. So I once read the advice, just over mix it once. Okay? And, and then you'll see, it like, happens many minutes after you thought it actually happens. So <laughs> I, I took that uh, idea for many other goals in my life that are much more important. Just like, see what it takes to fail so you understand <laughs> You get a sense of when you're asking too much from other people or from yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, this is the kind of thing where it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we want to be in this area where not everything that we are doing is a success. So we know that we are pushing ourselves. And then we need to have a culture that celebrates the failure, that learns from failure, what we find too often is that people either don't learn anything from negative experience, that is, they don't even remember it. Mm. They can't even tell you what happened. Mm. Or that they learn in a way too much. Instead of extracting a lesson of this was not the right way, what is the right way? The lesson that they take from the experience is that this is just not for me. Okay, mm. I cannot mm. do this. Okay? Either I don't even remember that I failed or I make this completely overgeneralized lesson that mm. I just cannot uh, do that. And a lot of the work is how to get people to get the specific lesson. What is the lesson here? Did you ask mm. at the wrong time? Did you ask the wrong person? Did you ask for too much? What mm. is the specific lesson that you can extract? Uh, Carol Dweck's growth mindset uh, mm-hmm. comes to mind as a way to think about what you have learned instead mm. of 
what does it mean about your personality, whatever that means in the first mm-hmm. place? Something that we tried just as, as an exercise that we found extremely beneficial is asking people to give advice based on their failed experience. What we do is asking people who are struggling with something to give advice to another struggler. We didn't do it with donors, but we did it, let's say, with unemployed people or with overweight mm. or with uh, students that were struggling with coursework. Mm. What we ask these people is to give advice to another struggler. And the first thing that they usually say is, why would you ask me? I'm unemployed. Why would you ask me how to get a job? And I would say, I ask you because obviously you are struggling. And then they give advice. Often the advice is very important and, and meaningful and good. But what's more important for us, they are motivated by their advice. Giving advice to another person often helps you extract the lessons that you have learned from your experience. That reminds me a lot of Dr. Cross's work around distant self-talk and just the activity even of envisioning what would you say to a friend in this situation? So I love that connection. I want to ask you one other question before we have you share all the different ways for folks to, to find and get in touch with you. I'm curious about the tracking of progress towards a goal, that piece that you talked about, how important it is to have clarity around the goal, but then also to really be following your progress towards that goal. Do you ever suggest that based on what you were just talking about around the failure component or needing to pivot, do you ever suggest that in that middle zone, when they're tracking their progress towards a goal, if they're struggling in a certain way, or if there are certain indicators that it's time to perhaps set a different goal? More uh, to, no, to set sub-goals. Okay? And what I mean by that is that in, in the middle, we see this decline in motivation. Okay? So let's mm-hmm. say that you want to, uh, I don't know, collect uh, $1,000 for a cause. So the first and second and third donations will feel like you're making fast progress. Okay? Like mm. if the first person uh, gave $50 and the second person gave another $50, you've doubled. Mm. Okay? Uh, toward the end, uh, again, it feels like fast progress because you can see that the gap to the end goal closing very quickly. In the middle, your actions, other people's actions often seem like a drop in the bucket. Okay, like it's hard to see how these actions are important for the goal. You don't see progress and this undermines motivation. So you just break the goal targets that we set. I know that the organization is not going to stop their work once they have reached the goal. If you're collecting $1,000 for your course, you're not done when you reach that goal. You're just done with the sub goal and there will be a next. And the, the idea is to create these short-term goals that are sufficiently challenging, but also you can still see progress. The middle is not too long. We're going to have a link for Get It Done, your book in the show notes and everything. I really feel like fundraisers and fundraising teams need to buy your book and then design their fundraising strategies and plans, building in these components around goal setting. And I love this idea of 
really paying attention to the middle and what's happening in the middle and these sub goals. So thank you so much. I know that we have just touched the tip of the iceberg in terms of all of your wisdom around these issues. So tell folks the best way to follow along um, with your work or connect with you. And then I always invite folks if they'd like to highlight a nonprofit that's near and dear to their heart that we spotlight on the show as well. All animals organizations. <laughs> and I don't want to choose one because I, I like them. We'll shout out a bunch of them. <laughs> give, to the, uh, give to the animals and uh, how to uh, uh, reach me. Get my book, Get It Done, Surprising Lessons from the Science of Motivation. Uh, go on my website, ayelitfishback.com. If you ever want to uh, run a study with your charity, then get in touch and let's think about how to study what gets people to give. I love that. Thank you for your time and for all of this wisdom today. Thank you very much. Such a pleasure talking to you. I love when I have an interview where I learn so many new strategies that I never considered before. But before we dive into some of my favorite takeaways, I wanted to just point out that you might have heard different pauses or a softer voice from me in this episode, and that's because it was recorded in the midst of a COVID exposure quarantine without childcare, meaning I had a screaming toddler in the background. It feels important to share this with you and to continue to remind ourselves that we're all doing the best we can. And for working parents who continue to juggle full schedules with closures and gaps in childcare, the pandemic certainly isn't over. I'm grateful for the warmth and support from Ayela in this imperfect recording environment. And I hope we all continue to show each other this level of compassion and acceptance as we navigate this ever-changing environment. Back to my favorite takeaways. Number one, I love how she talks about how you communicate feedback and progress matters. It was fascinating to me that people that are highly committed to the organization, it's best to tell them how much is still needed or how much is missing than if you told them the money that's already been raised, but that new donors are just the opposite of committed donors, that they are more motivated if you tell them about the money that you've already raised. Okay, talk about the need to segment lists. The critical point here is that it's just about how you monitor progress publicly. It's the same objective situation. You are either 50% of the way there or have 50% to go. It's just about how you emphasize the missing or completed part. The second piece I really love is how she talks about time giving back to the cause in a personal way, and that the donor feels so much more connected to the cause when they're contributing something of meaning, like giving monetarily in conjunction with leaving a heartfelt message or a pen, that they are more likely to be retained if there are multiple forms of engagement on a consistent basis. I could not believe that just leaving two sentences or a pen that was meaningful to them made that much of a difference. But this is something for us to really put a pin in because I think we worry so much about asking for too much and that's just the narrative that we've created in our head. The research tells a totally different story. I also love the fundraiser motivation recommendations around the middle problem. I had never had words for it before, but it's so true that we get so excited about those first few donations, but then things trail off in the middle, even when donations are coming in that are the same size or bigger. 
The idea of setting up incremental goals to be tracking along the way is so helpful, no matter how big or small the ultimate end goal is. I think this is especially true when you're thinking about motivating your team or board members. All right, there is so much more where this came from, so head on over to malloryerickson.com backslash podcast to get access to all of the show notes right now. You'll also find more information there about Ayelet and how to connect with her and buy her amazing book. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I am so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you tomorrow in the next episode of this mini series. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to malloryerickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.